And hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is Jim Arcardi, and today we're going to spend some time with Sunil Yu, the author of Cyber Defense Matrix, The Essential Guide to Navigating the Cybersecurity Landscape. But he's done a whole lot more than that. Uh, for those of you who are listening in, uh, please make sure that you're subscribing to us and share us with your friends on LinkedIn. But before we go into today's episode, let me share with you a word from our sponsor. Did you know the largest ransomware payment ever made was $40 million? Conventional ransomware defense doesn't address the real issue, open access to critical data. An employee can access 17 million files on day one. Veronis reduces your ransomware blast radius by showing you where your company's critical data is overexposed and automatically locking it down. Let Veronis test your ransomware readiness to see where you stack up. It's free, customizable, and non-intrusive. Visit veronis.com slash CISO Tradecraft. Sunil, welcome to the virtual studio. Thanks, G-Mark. It's great to be here. And by the way, G-Mark, I, I should say I've known you for a while. You have a great radio voice. And I know that there's a joke associated with that, too. But um, Yeah, it I, says, I it says you've got a face for radio. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I figured if I, ever, if I ever washed out in cybersecurity, I could do voiceovers for serial yes, commercials sure or something could. like that. But uh, yeah, as you mentioned, well, we've known each other for a number of years. And I first had a chance to get to know you, uh, was it 2014? So, wow, that's eight years ago, during, at Mach 37. Uh, which is a cybersecurity accelerator out of Hernan, Virginia. And I was part of the second class. And I think you and I were both part of the STARS network of advisors. And I remember that they were looking at stuff. I was talking to one of the guys there and uh, about the upcoming class. And I said, you know, it's, it's nicer. It's more fun to work on your own issue than somebody else's, your own business. And he said, well, the ap applications are open till Friday and they've been open for five months. So Wednesday night, I call up a couple friends and Thursday I record a video and Friday at 10:30 night I uploaded the stuff and I think the next Tuesday I got a call with a couple follow-on questions didn't think anything of it and then Friday they called up and said congratulations you beat out 39 other applicants you're in I said I'm in what I said you're in the cohort <laughs> be here Monday I said wow like, Monday Monday they go yeah as in three days Monday and I live in Florida, Florida this is out yeah. in Virginia and I hadn't tell my wife about this because I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> but you are one of the kind of you know luminaries, if I will, a person of great insight and advice there. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you got here. And you know, like we'll talk a little bit about Mach 37, but really want to get into the cyber defense matrix. Yeah, actually, Mach 37 has more than a passing importance as it relates to the cyber defense matrix. Mach 37 was the first place where I actually showed the cyber defense matrix to anybody in the public. So yeah, so it has an interesting place in my heart for that reason. The when I was at Mach 37, when we met, we I was at Bank of America as their chief security scientist, and part of my remit at the time was to look at all the new and emerging startups to see how those uh, capabilities would fit into the portfolio of security functions or capabilities that we needed at Bank of America. So it, it was in that capacity that I was there to. Uh, to mentor startups like yours and to find ones that would be appropriate for use at Bank of America. But, you know, the challenge that we had and, and we still have to some degree is just uh, getting our arms around the, the broad range of capabilities that are out there. How do we know what each of these different companies do? How do they fit into any sort of uh, meaningful framework? And that was a struggle for me for a while until I came up with the cyber defense matrix. 
So that was, you had looked at a lot of things. You would also work kind of in the you know, advisor, were you in the VC world at all at any point? Uh, I, I spent a year in VC uh, last year in between my time at Bank of America and where I am now. So I'm currently at, I'm the CISO at Jupiter One, which is a cybersecurity startup in and of itself. But in between uh, Bank of America and Jupiter One, I spent a year in VC, specifically with YL Ventures, which is an Israeli seed stage startup venture capital firm. And that was uh, that was a fantastic opportunity and, and journey and experience where I had a chance to meet with a lot of enterprising entrepreneurs that had interesting ideas on, in terms of the problems that they wanted to solve in cybersecurity. So anyway, my, my time as CISO in residence wasn't to go and start a cybersecurity company, but rather to help uh, vet these ideas and to shape them so that they can go and start a company that uh, would be solving meaningful problems in, in our space. Yeah, and I think Wild probably created a huge opportunity for people to have access to some of your background, skills, and talent to say, hey, here's some quote-unquote free advice. And usually they say free advice is worth what you pay for it. But in this particular case, you're actually on the payroll and you're, you're providing meaningful inputs because these startups, if investors are going to put a lot of capital in them, they need to know it's not going to go out the back door or, or get hacked in, in some kind of goofy yeah. thing that could have been prevented. Yeah, and actually, it, it was um, it, the cyber defense matrix played a pretty significant role in in my thinking and how we thought about uh, interesting companies while I was in VC. And specifically, given that uh, YL Ventures uh, invests exclusively in cybersecurity companies, there's going to be many opportunities for overlap and for potential collisions with companies that uh, may ultimately end up competing with another portfolio company. And that was something that we were actually really trying to avoid. And it was very commendable because there were a lot of great opportunities that uh, we had to pass on because, well, they ultimately conflicted with one of the companies that we already had in the portfolio. But how do you know that they're going to conflict? Or how do you know that they're going to intersect at some point? Um, and also, how do we know what sort of problems need to be solved? Well, the cyber defense matrix uh, and my time at Wild Ventures was essentially a test of the cyber defense matrix to see whether or not it could serve as a framework to think through these challenges of intersections and gaps and, and whatnot in the market. So anyway, the, whether, or not it's, whether or not the ability to find these gaps is suc commercially successful is still to be seen because, well, you know, it's going to take some time for these startups to mature and grow and so on and so forth. But uh, as far as actually making investments based on the cyber defense matrix, we, we did that. And that was really uh, exciting for me. Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's fascinating because, you know, as you had indicated, this is, this is a genesis of a number of years of thinking and experience and talking to people and things such as that. And the thing I love about it is I went through it. I mean, my first read through the book, and again, thank you for the copy. I think you gave this to me with a schmookon. Schmookon. Mm -hmm. And uh, went through and, and curled up with the book. And I, my first thought when I got to the end of the book was, you know, as a CISO, I could manage a cybersecurity program using your book as a framework. There yeah. is enough meat in here. There's enough value in here that I'm thinking every CISO needs to have this and not just on the bookshelf for eye candy, but take the time and kind of slog through it a little bit. And I don't mean slog through it in a negative way, but <laughs> I mean, it's, it's dense material. I, I mean, it, there's a lot is, of yeah. value packed in per page. This is not light reading. And so if it's okay with you, I'd like to kind of walk through the book a little bit at a high level so people kind of understand a little bit what's in here and then feel sure. free to explain a little bit of the background 
Yeah. Well, actually, let me let me caveat a couple things. Uh, and and by the way, as far as the link for the book is concerned, uh, it took me two years to write this, but at the same time, uh, I, I love the old adage, which is, I would have written you a shorter letter if I had more time. Well, I had a lot of time, and I hope I was able to write a shorter letter, so to speak. I, I had actually started with a much much larger volume of content, but at the end, you got what you got. So, but anyway. It, and, it's it's good. And I will agree with that assessment because sometimes you read things and you can tell that the author was kind of compelled by a publisher. You know, you need another 50 pages. And I didn't see any fluff in here. This this went right to the point. And, uh, you know, it starts out with the introduction. And I love your statement. Basically saying the cyber ecosystem is hopelessly disorganized. And a lot of us face that. You go to RSA. That's coming up what, uh, very shortly. Uh, and what'll happen then is that you get there. And I remember the being in the Moscone Center. Last time I was at RSA, I was a speaker and I'm thinking, you know, I'm competing against almost a dozen other speakers at this very instant for eyeballs and you know, butts and seats, as well as everybody who's trying to get down there to the vendor showcase in the Moscone Center on both sides, plus the stuff in the middle. And you don't realize how many businesses are in the cybersecurity space until you actually show up at a place like that. And they give you a vendor directory that looks like the Manhattan phone book. And so the lack of organization and some of the organization that we tend to place in the cybersecurity world is dictated, if that's the right word, uh, inferred by the Gartner Group. And all of us have gone through the magic quadrant, and we understand that the goal is be high and to the right, be magic with an ability to execute and a complete vision. And you do that, and wow, you win. And then, of course, most people don't realize if you actually go on to the Gartner website, you try to buy one of these things, it's $2,000 a copy. So how, do, how come everybody gets them? Because the folks who finish high and right are given republishing rights for a fee, of course, and then you get access to it. So the winners will, will kind of brag about themselves, but... The concern that I had had in a situation like that is, A, it's very vendor-focused rather than industry-focused. And then sometimes EDR and XDR and the EPP, they kind of change them, move them, and companies get dumped into a bucket. They say, but that's not really what we do. And, and Gartner says, that's the bucket we put you in. But you've taken a totally agnostic view from a vendor perspective. And you've classified in basically a two-dimensional matrix, although you mentioned a little bit as a third, but the first one is something I think everybody can relate to, the NIST cybersecurity framework. Identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. And those you describe as functions. But then what's interesting is that if you map those uh, five different functions into five different asset classes, devices, networks, applications, data, and users. And as you point out, those are all mutually exclusive terms. And so you end up with, in math, it would be like a one-to-one -one and onto relationship where everything has a place and nothing can, you know, nothing doesn't fit. It's a double negative. Uh, but, but that way, it's a lot of power in that. What, what were your thoughts about coming up with that idea of creating essentially something where, you know, it's the old joke about the college finals is define the universe, cite three examples. And I think you've defined the universe here. <laughs> well, all right, there's a lot to unpack here. So first is that the framework, I was trying to have what we call a mutually exclusive, comprehensively exhaustive framework, or MISI. And MISI frameworks are extremely hard to develop because how can you ensure that things are mutually exclusive but also comprehensively exhaustive? 
I, I don't know to what degree it truly is MISI, but it is arguably one of the more MISI frameworks that are out there. Now, that poses a number of challenges as well, because vendors will come in and say, well, you ask them, well, where do you fit on the matrix? And of course, the standard answer is, I fit everywhere, or I fit in all these boxes. And I think as a former, as a as a way to to force ourselves to really think about the nature of the capability, trying to squeeze something into a single box actually becomes a great thought exercise. And that's really where you're going back to the Gardner issue being a particular problem, because you take a particular category that vendor uh, that the you take a particular category that Gardner creates, and even if a vendor expands their suite of capabilities, they still fit into this one particular category that vendor that Gardner, Gardner creates. Whereas it, the cyber defense matrix essentially outlines functional categories across all these different types of asset classes, and it allows us to basically broaden the scope of the kind of capabilities that we need to think through. I've actually proposed to Gardner, hey, you should look at the cyber defense matrix and find a way to to align some of the, the categories that they have to it. And I even told them, you might be able to even sell more of those reports because you actually end up with more categories. But anyway, that said, they're out to, there's a, there's a money-making opportunity that they have. And you know, there's, there's certainly some value that they bring to the, to the community in terms of just being able to distill some of these capabilities into terminology and language that that the vast that the mass populace can understand, but it doesn't necessarily help us understand completeness. And that's essentially the goal of the cyber defense matrix. How do we understand completeness? And, and it does, as they say, it paints into the corners very nicely. So with that five by five, and again, since this is like a radio show, you can't people can't look at it. So identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. It's a and, bingo card. Yeah. Yeah. And then devices, networks, applications, data, and users. But at the bottom, then you have an additional kind of dependencies on people, technology, and process. And you show that there is sort of a shift <laughs> on the people technology. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. So this degree of dependency spectrum that is on the bottom of the matrix is actually one of the more interesting aspects of the of the framework itself. In fact, I, I would argue in many ways, it's probably the most interesting aspect of it for a number of reasons. One is it helps us, and it, by the way, it's a conjecture. It's a hypothesis that I've put forward. And so far, I, I've, I've, asked, I've looked for counter evidence against it, and I've not found something that counters this, this theory or this hypothesis I've put forth. But the basic idea is that on the uh, functions of identify and protect, it's much more uh, heavily dependent upon technology to support our needs there. On the right side, on the detect, respond, recover side, it's more heavily dependent upon people. Now, it's not to say that there isn't people needs on the le- on the identify and protect and technology needs on the detect, respond, recover. There is. It's just uh, the proportion is much smaller. And then underneath all that is uh, an equal amount of process. So process is necessary to route uh, all the five functions of the NIST cybersecurity framework. What the significance of that degree of dependency means that how much we allocate as far as resources to people, process, and technology changes depending upon whether we're doing an identify function or a detect function, okay? 
And hereupon is actually one of the most important reasons why mapping to the matrix is, why mapping correctly to the matrix is really important. It's because if I end up doing a, a function that is properly labeled under identify, then I should be looking at technology to largely solve my problem. If I properly label some capability under detect, then I should depend at least, uh, or at least allocate a significant amount of resources to handle the people side of the equation. But unfortunately, many times we confuse the words identify and detect and uh, treat them as synonymous when they're actually not. Functionally, they're very different and functionally, they require a different distribution of resources. And, and you get into that too when you start talking on what does each function mean? And you've got a section there and you start out on 15, understanding the difference between identify and detect, as you had said. So what's the biggest difference, if you will, between identify and detect, protect and respond, protect and detect? Because you mentioned that the NIST cybersecurity framework authors never address these definitional issues and then misalignment is the inevitable result. And I kind of was joking before the show, I said that uh, you're building this on the foundation of the NIST cybersecurity framework. And in the first 20 pages of your book, you proceed to point out all the deficiencies in the cybersecurity framework. And, in, and not in a negative way, by the way, but in a constructive way to say it could be tighter, it could be cleaner, it could be more solid. So as we look at that to make sure that our listeners are understanding, identify versus detect, protect, respond, protect, detect. What's, how, how do we know where we are so we don't have any ambiguity? Yeah, so the NIST cybersecurity framework was a very noble attempt to try to bring some order to this chaos. The, the biggest challenge really was that a lot of us come in with baggage around what we think these words actually mean. And as you pointed out, the uh, many of the definitions that NIST uses to define, let's say, the word identify uses the word detect and vice versa. In the word detect, they use the word identify. Well, it's not it's not very helpful if you use these words in such a way that they're literally interchangeable in the definition itself. So what I tried to do in the book was to avoid using those words at all to define those words. I wanted to be able to define what those activities are from a functional standpoint and then go about enumerating those kinds of activities. So instead of you saying the word identify, I would say, well, this function, this first function involves, for example, inventorying and then prioritizing and then looking for vulnerabilities and attack surfaces and doing a threat assessment. So all these things that we do in this first function, we happen to put the label, quote, identify, right? Now, you asked the question, like, what's the main difference? How, do you, how can you discern between identify and detect or protect and respond and all these other uh, activities that we do? Well, one of the main differentiators I, I try to articulate in the book is this notion of left and right of boom. So boom occurs between protect and detect. And left of boom is everything that you do to avoid the boom, a boom being some, some negative event that you're trying to avoid. Uh, and then right of boom is everything that you do to discover or to find that event that occurred and then subsequently address it through the different actions that you can perform within your environment. So then that provides a really simple distinction between the words identify and detect in terms of the functional differences between them. Left of boom is things to understand the structure of your environment and the weaknesses associated with that. 
on the right of boom, you're looking for exploitation against those weaknesses, and you want to get situational awareness and understand what happened past tense. So those activities then align pretty nicely with either identify on the left or detect on the right. And then it goes on from there. So really, in the identify protect phase, that's sort of our, our prepping the battlefield, so to speak. We're developing our policies, our procedures, we're acquiring our tools, our assets, we're drilling, we're, exercising, we're making sure we're ready to go. But it all comes down to when all of a sudden, boom, happens, and then we're in response mode. And our ability to respond faster than the attacker, that is to say, get inside their OODA loop, uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. And if we can you know, respond faster, they can pull off whatever it is they're pulling off. You, you catch them in the lobby, so to speak, with the bag of money, rather than you know giving a description of the getaway car to the cops. Yeah, yeah, and and one of the things that uh, we oftentimes confuse is this notion of a protect action being considered a respond action. So a lot of times we'll say, oh, we got to patch that because that. Uh, is our response to some vulnerability being exploited. Yes, we absolutely want to patch that. But that's actually not a respond action. That's actually a protect action because the point of patching is to prevent the next time uh, getting compromised. And one of the ways to think about this, the best analogy to give is consider the activity that you do when it comes to a fire. Okay, So you find a weakness in your house, and that weakness is you have wood that catches fire with a with a single match okay so it's not very flame proof it's not fire retardant okay well what do you what tools do you use to replace or to fix that issue to patch that wood consider that from the type of tools that you use when your house is actually on fire okay when your house is on fire you're using hoses and waters and axes and those are not patching tools. <laughs> they are not protective tools. They're absolutely response tools. So likewise, in cybersecurity, we have really a different set of tools for response than we do for protection. But we oftentimes conflate them and say, well, we're going to patch this. That's our response. No, not really. That's a protect function. Your response is going to be entirely different. The type of tools that you use for response are going to be entirely different. And, and what you get to here was your third chapter on mapping security technologies and categories. And as I shared with you before, I had to read that chapter about four times. And not because you don't write well, but because I, had to, I had to get inside your head. Because as I'm looking at the identify, protect, and recover, you're mapping that to the first order asset that's the subject of the thing. This is the thing that is being identified, not the tool that's doing the identification, but the thing that's being identified. And then on the detect, it's all about the use case. And for response, it's, okay, what was the asset being responded to? And that takes a little bit of uh, reorienting. Yeah, that one, yes, that is a lot. That's very difficult to convey properly in words. And it's oftentimes much easier just to explain it verbally, which is how I'm doing it now. You pointed out a couple of things. So let's let's walk through them uh, one by one. So first is this notion of first order versus second order and third order functions. So oftentimes what I will hear from vendors is my product protects your data. And of course, data is important to a lot of people. So therefore, if I buy your tool, then it'll protect my, my data. Well, if I buy antivirus, is it actually protecting my data or is it protecting my device? 
And I would argue as a first order function, it's protecting my device. As a second order function, it's protecting whatever data is on that device. But it doesn't protect the data directly. It protects it indirectly. So the device includes the operating system then from your perspective, not just the hardware. Yeah, yeah. And operating, so that's actually one of the issues I had uh, in trying to describe the term applications. Because, well, what is an application? Is that like Microsoft Office? Or is that code that you download on GitHub or programs that you create? It, and it's applications, as I define it, it's definitely more the latter. It's programs that you create and less programs that you buy and programs that you install. So the programs that you buy and install, I, I generally lump that under devices. Mm -hmm. So Windows and, and most of the thick client applications that we install on your on your endpoint. So anyway, the the perspective of first order, what what a capability does on a first order level is what I try to focus on on the mapping. It, now it gets a little harder though when we're starting to deal with things like detect and respond, or specifically detect. Because when it comes to detect, we're actually consuming data from multiple sources, from uh, multiple sources around the asset that is compromised. In fact, one of the things uh, I've been thinking through is, should I even trust the asset that has been compromised anymore, right? If, for example, Gmark, you're, let's say you're an insider, okay? Should I trust inputs from you anymore if you're an insider, if you've been a compromised individual? Yeah, I mean, if, up to the point that you identify the compromise, you've been trusting that asset. But usually that compromise awareness takes place right of boom. And so then you're like, when did boom happen? When did this asset get compromised? And how far back should I not trust the telemetry I've been seeing? Right. Which is almost an independent question, but it's an important one that sometimes we don't ask. Well, the, the, if, you ask, if you look at it independently in isolation, then you won't necessarily have data to suggest that it has been compromised. What you need to do is to compare that with data around it. So network data, application data, even user data. So if an endpoint has been compromised, well, I, I absolutely expect my users to be part of my sensor grid saying, hey, my computer is acting funny, right? Or if your user has been compromised, you know, it's become an insider threat, then I expect my devices to tell me something about the user. I expect my uh, network to tell me something about the user. So, but can I trust the user if the user has been compromised? Can I trust the endpoint if the endpoint has been compromised? And the answer is up to a point, right? You can only, you need to take uh, whatever they say with a grain of salt and compare that with all the environmental information to be able to say, okay, this is consistent or inconsistent. And if it's inconsistent, then it warrants an investigation. So anyway, this whole notion of, of what's the proper mapping, for most of the functions of identify, protect, respond, and recover, it's a pretty much of a direct mapping, first order mapping of what the asset that that function is applying to. When it comes to detect, it's what what asset are you trying to uh, what what's the use case for the for the uh, and compromise that you're trying to 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 uncover and the use case may involve the consumption of data uh, outside of that particular asset but the use case is still to find compromise of that asset so you take something like a network intrusion detection system and we say okay that's it well it's a detection system so detect sounds the right place and well device application network data users network and that one that was a gimme okay that's the 101 type classification that worked a little bit easily but then when you got to just ids 
All right. And you're smiling a little bit. You know, when, 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 you know, I'll still give intrusion detection system the detect, but where does it fit in terms of the asset class and why? Okay, so this is another... Uh, okay, so I have to first say that in everything that I'm doing, I'm trying to be internally consistent. Mm -hmm. And that internal consistency that causes me to encounter some really weird anomalies in our terminology. And as a result of that, I have I personally have cognitive dissonance, and this causes cognitive dissonance for anyone else who also hears this as well. So I mentioned just a moment ago, the, when it comes to the use cases for detect, uh, it, it consumes data from outside of that environment. But for the other asset, for the other function, identify, protect, uh, respond, recover, it's f for the asset itself. So where does a network intrusion detection system go? Well, first of all. The question really is, what function does it fall into? And you would think that the function is detect because it has the word detect in it. However, is it truly a detection function? Okay, as I would describe in the, the definition of detect. And it turns out, it, and I make this argument in the book, that I would actually apply, place network IDS as a protect function, okay? Now you may wonder, like, wow, whoa, whoa, how's that? How's that the case? Well, let me let me walk you through an example. If I took a IPS, an intrusion prevention system, and I said, okay, you know what? I don't want to block anything. I just want to basically just uh, log all the traffic and anything interesting that comes through. Well, effectively, it becomes an IDS, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't think anyone dis would disagree with me that a network intrusion prevention system is under protect network. Network protect is the category it's in. The question I, I pose, though, is what difference does it make in the mapping? Does the mapping change because I go from 100% blocking to 0% blocking? And I would argue, no, the mapping actually doesn't change. The, how you use it doesn't change the fundamental nature of what it's supposed to do. Okay. Regardless of whether I'm 100% blocking or 0% blocking, I'm still logging the activities. And I'm taking those activities and sending them to something else that actually does the detection, which is a SIM. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what we do today. We st stick all the IDS data and stick it into a SIM. And we compare that data with all this other data to correlate that and say, did an intrusion actually occur? Anyway, th there's a lot more to unpack with that statement. But that is something that still causes cognitive dissonance for me because an IDS, just because it has the word detection, to me, makes me want to put it under detection. But formally speaking, and to remain internally consistent, it's actually a protect function. And if you take the time to get into it, it makes sense. Like I said, that was that was kind of my cause of the second, third, and fourth reread till I was able to finally get inside. Okay, that's what he means by an intrusion detection system. It's just, just the way they called it because, yeah, in, in a way, you're protecting it. And then, of course... And I should mention, the, the reason why the cyber defense matrix is also very useful is because it creates all these parallels. Right? You can compare that with, for example, this, a similar capability that uh, occurs in a uh, applications, let's say, like a WAF, web application firewall. Well, a web application firewall, a firewall, is generally seen as a protect function. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, if I choose to take that firewall and not block anything and just log only, again, does it change it from being a protect function or does it all of a sudden now move to detect because I've I've turned that dial from 100 to zero? 
And, and I, I would argue, no, it, actually, a WAF still remains application protect, even regardless of whether I block anything or not. It's still application protect. So, in the same way, for an IPS or an IDS, I take an IPS and make it block nothing, basically turning it into an IDS. Does it change the mapping? And the answer is no. And that internal consistency gets us out of the perpetual argument of, well, well then where's the threshold? Is it a 20%? Is it, you know, E or, you know, where, you know, where do you actually get there? And, and it doesn't, doesn't have to come up that way. And again, that's the nice thing of consistency. So let's give another example. I'm worried about ransomware protection. And I say, okay, I'm going to restore from backups. The average person would say, oh, that's a recover function. But what's your thoughts on, you know, those backups that we restore from? All right, you're picking all the really hard ones. <laughs> well, I figure everybody else will get the easy ones, but I want to, you know, again, once someone understands kind of the way of thinking, all of a sudden, as I say, I was able to click in and get the internal consistency in this model meant so much more to me. So that's kind of why I'm drilling in on a couple of these, not to not to be difficult, but. Uh, oh, no, no, it's, uh, these are, this is one of the reasons why it took me two and a half years to finish writing the book. <laughs> but anyway, that said, I also will say I, I reserve the right to change my mind. And feedback from folks like yourself and others in the community have been really helpful to help me really think through these and ensure that, again, I'm I'm, meaning, I'm, I'm keeping internally consistent with each of these different types of mappings that I do. So ultimately, a lot of people would say backup is intended to protect your data, right? But the backup actually doesn't, your, your data can still be harmed, okay? It's, and as, as an example, it can be harmed in the sense of uh, the divergence of confidentiality, right? Which is what oftentimes occurs. So a backup doesn't necessarily protect your data. One can argue, I guess, it protects the availability of that data. But usually that's also, again, part of a recover operation. The, the actual activity of backing up does really nothing to ensure that the data is, quote, protected. In fact, in many ways, <laughs> it propagates the data in such a way that it makes the data even more exposed to, to other forces. So that's it. Anyway, the, the, the other perspective is, uh, again, the pattern matching fits in here as well. So making a copy, making duplicate copies of an application or making duplicate copies of a, an endpoint, uh, again, those are all oftentimes seen as a recover function. So in other words, your laptop gets compromised. Let me get you another laptop. It's a That's a recover operation, not a protect device operation. And, and my thought is, is that recover is right of boom. And so having those backups better occur left of boom where there's nothing to back up from. And so as a result, I would push it to the left over here. And you kind of argued out of the protect function. The only thing left is identify. And so if I know what it is that needs to be back up and protected, I don't have to back up the trash. I don't have to back up the garbage or the unimportant, only the mission critical systems. That's the key function that's required to be able to create the effective copy or copies of whatever else are I going to record, whether it's data, whether it's system images and things such as that, or if I go into a DevOps environment and things such as that, having the ability to, to fall back and things. So again, as you had indicated, uh, you're, you're open to feedback and we're not trying to pick the model apart, but I'm trying to help people understand that, that this is a big deal. 
this is the first person I've run into in all my years doing cybersecurity who's really tried to come up with the equivalent of a unified field theory for how all of this puts together. And, and when Schopenhauer said everything is first you know, ridiculed and you know, it's rejected and ridiculed and finally accepted as obvious. Uh, and I, I think we may get there. But yes, for those who have a chance to go through uh, and look at the book, if you, if you hit that chapter and, and, you, and it slows you down a little bit, don't feel bad. Uh, but the point is, is that I wanted to point out is that it's worth the time to get your head around it because once you do that, everything works pretty well because now we can do things like pattern matching. We can make sure our assets are consistent or, or functional consistent. And as you had talked before about the difference between first order and second order. And the another thing you can look at is our maturity of doing these things from kind of easy to hard. So you laid out a kind of a five different easy to hard, and you, you made an analogy to vaccines, which I thought was very uh, timely, but also very straightforward, easy to understand. So you know, when we talk about measurement maturity, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, uh, so there's an error that I had in the book, which was that I actually was trying to avoid the, avoid the use of the word maturity, and somehow I added the word in by mistake. And the reason why I, I was trying to specifically avoid the word maturity is because, again, it's another one of those words that has baggage. And I would rather spend the time to try to define a set of activities or a state that one can later on describe as saying that's mature. Okay, But I don't want to presume that something is mature just because I say so. I want to instead be able to define a scale or define something and then someone wants to slap the word maturity on it, uh, they're welcome to do so. But in, in later revisions, that you'll, for those who get the later revisions, you'll note that there's not a single use of the word maturity in the book whatsoever. <laughs> okay, now what G. Mark was talking about was uh, I tried to describe uh, five level, levels of measurement health. And that five levels is really tied to this notion that in many measurement programs that we have in various organizations, the, the type of measurements that we oftentimes want is nowhere close to the type of measurements that we actually have. The type of measurements that we really want are, is this investment worth it? <laughs> is the product working as, uh, you know, is it working as efficiently or effectively as we had hoped? And those are, of course, I mean, those are the kind of measurements that we absolutely want but oftentimes the best measurements that we can get are did we buy the product <laughs> have we actually installed it where is it installed and do we turn on these different features and part of my argument in the book is to say if we're trying to hope for these higher level measurements these harder measurements but we don't even have these foundational measurements of is it installed what what does it cover then we should not give much credibility to these higher level measurements because we don't even have the foundational level measurements. So it's almost like a hierarchy, kind of like a Maslow's, uh, where you can't get to the higher levels without completing the lower level. But once you've kind of reached saturation, a lower level, more effort there is not going to help. It's not going to improve your security posture. I'm not sure if I would go as far as saying it won't necessarily help, but I would say your confidence in uh, understanding whether or not this investment is actually meaningful and, and worth it is debatable if you don't have measurements around like coverage or utilization. 
so if you don't have those kind of measurements, then how could you make any sort of claim that the product that you bought or the capability that you have is actually meaningfully providing the value that you're looking for? So the relative difficulty scale that you lay out in the book is, is the first is presence, does the capacity even exist? Mm-hmm. Number two is coverage, is the capability enabled? Number three, utilization, are all available features enabled? Number four, getting a little bit more difficult, how the performance, how well does the capability work? And number five, how cost efficient is the capability? And I almost thought that that could be, you know, five could be distributed across them. But the, the vaccine analogy, just to be briefly, I want to get one other chapter here, and then we're going we're gonna to run out of time halfway through your book, and we might have to get you back on the show again. But uh, sure. on the presence the vaccine analogy, like, is there a vaccine? You know, if there isn't one, then you got to operate around it. And on the coverage, is that how broadly has it been distributed? If it's all sitting in a warehouse, it's not helping a whole lot. Yeah. And, then on utilization, and, and has it actually been opened? I mean, are right. we actually starting to dispense? Yeah. Right. And then utilization is how many times have you actually given people doses? All right. It's nice that they exist and it's nice that it's in a warehouse, but it doesn't help until you actually get it into people. And then, of course, number four is on performance. Does the vaccine work well and how long does it uh, provide your protection before you might have to go ahead and, and go back again? And then the last one, the hard one, if you will, is the efficiency. And you know, can you reduce your risk more efficiently, as you said, with a one-shot vaccine or a two? And we're not going to get into the, the geopolitics, but you know, <laughs> for example, you look at the way that China has been dealing with coronavirus and compare it with the Florida approach toward coronavirus. It's almost exact opposites Opposite. in terms of you know, and history will tell which is a better approach. We we mm-hmm. think we know right now, but usually. Uh, these things are better understood in retrospect. Right. But the the one thing I wanted to make sure we covered on on this show is the idea of a security roadmap. And you'd offered five layers of where we could go ahead and look at five different things. You had sort of uh, an analogy to cooking, so to speak, or shopping, et cetera. And if you could walk through that kind of quickly, because that to me seemed like a very powerful model that allows you to really look at five different things at once and not get overwhelmed or not have to get your head around a tesseract type model that's in multiple uh, dimensions. Fundamentally, the cyber defense matrix is an organizational system and it helps you organize what appears to be very disparate types of information. So my original use case was mapping vendors. And then subsequently, I came up with all these other use cases. And let me jump back to something real quickly. One of my favorite quotes is George Box's, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Mm-hmm. So the cyber defense matrix is a model that is wrong. I'll tell you that right now. It's wrong. There's, there's problems with it. And I've seen many personal, I've personally seen many problems with it. But I found a lot of utility out of it. And one of the most useful aspects of it is actually just organizing very disparate pieces of information. Well, what are the different pieces of information that you can organize? And I would argue you can organize, using a food analogy, what's in your pantry? So what do you have in your current set of capabilities today? It can organize recipes. What are the requirements that you have to meet? What what do you need to make? It can organize nutritional needs. You can organize things like what are the threats and the risks that you're facing within your environment. It can organize things that are in the market, the grocery store. So if you if you look in your pantry, if you have a recipe and you look in your pantry and you're like, I don't have this, and you know you have to meet certain nutritional needs, well, you can go to the market and get whatever you need. 
But you get to the market and you see products that are full of gluten and dairy, and let's suppose you have uh, allergies, okay? So you can also map allergies or what I would call business constraints, uh, these sort of things that make it really difficult for you to implement a certain security control. So these are very different things, but they're all things that we have to deal with in cybersecurity. And being able to organize this in a systematic way, I think provides a really great strategic view of the type of things that you need to do within your program to be able to meet whatever set of meals that you need to make for your organization. And I should mention, the meals that you make for uh, your organization are going to be different for each business group, right? Which is why I think the the allergies or the business constraints is a, is a really important facet to uh, to the matrix and to, to the understanding of this roadmap. You can't, it, it's not a one size fits all for within a given organization and certainly not across organization. But how do you organize all this information into a, a systematic reusable way? And the cyber defense matrix provides a mechanism for that. And I think it does because when you, you put all five of these things on top of each other, you're like, how do you do this five dimensional matrix? And, and the way you've come up with is rather innovative. I just kind of describe it and see if this verbal description. So we still got the five by five, but the first thing we're going to do is put a little red dot in every one of those sections where I've actually got a tool or a product or a little blue, I'm sorry, a blue dot goes there. That's my pantry. That's my current state. That's what I've got. I'm finding my requirements, my recipes. What do I need to do? Those are my red dots. And when I overlay them, I've got a gap analysis. Hey, I need these things, red dots, but I have these things, blue dots. So I guess I'm in good shape. But if I have a bunch of red dots and no blue dots in that box, there's some work to be done. And then your nutritional needs or your risks, are kind of a, a red shading in there from kind of a ordinary to pink to really red to say, hey, you know, I'm going to cross-reference some of the MITRE attack model to these asset classes. And that's that's where we figure out how bad my risk environment is. And then when you go to the store or the vendor market, you say, well, what's available? I mean, maybe there are not tools available in the market for what I want, but if there are, put a star in there. And it turns out that, hey, I've got a bunch of red dots, no blue dots, but I got some stars. Guess what? I can go shopping. I can do something about that. But as you had said, the business constraints, that additional cross-shading of the gray says, you know what? We're not allowed to do that. Or we've got a certain restrictions in our environment where such and such a vendor is not allowed or such tools are, are not deployable. And again, gives us a, a wonderful way to create a security roadmap because from here we can unwrap this thing and this becomes an action plan. This is something that can drive procurement, it can drive strategy, uh, it can drive briefings to the board and say, here's where we're at, here's where we need to be, here's what we need, and here's our resource requirements. And if you choose to fund them, here's where we can be in a year. Or if you choose not to fund them, then here's the risk we need to accept. Yeah, so there, for those who are listening, Mark, G. Mark went through all, all these symbols, and uh, it's like trying to describe a literal map of the United States <laughs> without yeah. actually visually seeing it. So it's a little hard to, to grasp if you're not able to see this in person. But even if you were to see it, I, I should warn you, the symbology may be still difficult to understand because if you were, let's say, a five-year-old and you saw a map for the first time, you'd have difficulty interpreting what all these different symbols mean. And so it, it will take some time for us to grasp the symbology and the significance of the symbology. But ultimately, when you can do that, you can see then a map of the United States or the map of your cybersecurity program. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a road map in the sense of where are you today and where are you trying to go, right? Uh, it just provides the framework for you now to think through that 
and to strategically plan uh, a direction that you actually want to go. And let me uh, reemphasize one quick word here, the word strategic. So there's a lot of interest in taking the cyber defense matrix and using it in a very tactical way. And I would caution against it. It's Again, it's a model, and this model is wrong. It's, it's particularly wrong when it comes to its tactical application, because there's only so much you can do with a five by five matrix. There's a lot of there's a lot of times that people want to double click and zoom into one territory, you know, the state of Florida or the state of Virginia or whatever else it is, and see the local roads. Well, the cyber defense matrix is not going to be well suited for that. You're going to have to look at other frameworks and other ways to to really explode that view into something that's a lot more granular and tactical. That makes sense. We're we're about out of time, and you know what? We're only halfway through your book, and so what I'd like to do uh, is invite you back to the show. If you'd love to come back, we'll talk about the, the next few chapters, which just for everybody's heads up until you go out and buy the book, which you should, Situational Awareness, Understanding Security Handoffs, Investing and Rationalizing Technologies, Dealing with the Latest Security Buzzwords. And the thing I kind of really liked at the end as an entrepreneur, as in a startup person, is how to use this thing to kind of look at the world and say, where does the world really need solutions? And if you wanted to go ahead and be an entrepreneur and start something, where can you go where you're probably not going to run into an awful lot of competition, but you're going to have an awful lot of customers? And that's a hugely valuable insight from a man with, with your background, who's worked both in the banking and the VC community, has been a CISO, and, and you now, after two plus years of hard work, you got an amazing book that's out here. Uh, any last thoughts you'd like to, uh, to share before we wrap up? Yeah, there's there's a lot of blue ocean opportunities that the Matrix helps us discover, and, and I keep discovering them as, as time goes on. The analogies that the the built-in analogies that the cyber defense matrix offers helps you discover a lot of these as well. Not not just the blue ocean opportunities, but what kind of boat you need to be able to sail into that too. So we'd love to come back and explore uh, the matrix further. But more importantly, I'd love to just hear from others in terms of no, novel ways that they've put the matrix to use. Uh, as I mentioned, all models are wrong, but some are useful. How have you made this useful? And I would love to hear from others on that. And, and we encourage everybody to do so because you can respond to our notes. You can connect to us on LinkedIn. Uh, give us some feedback at CISO Tradecraft. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcast channel, hopefully give us a thumbs up. Uh, we'd appreciate uh, the higher ranking helps get out to more folks and then share it with others. Let people know where you've learned some of your insight and your wisdom that you're applying in your job. So for CISO Tradecraft, this is G. Mark Hardy. Again, thank you very much, Sunil Yu, for your time on the show. Uh, we'll look forward to having you back again. And until next time, everyone, Stay safe.